Well, thank you very much, Jim. Thanks for the warmth of your welcome. And uh, just before we get into the message, can I say um, I do bring with me the, uh, the friendship and the fellowship and the love and blessings of Hillfields Church Commentary. Um, our leaders are aware uh, that I'm doing this today. Um, they're praying for me and we're thinking about you. And uh, wouldn't it be great over time if there's a stronger growing relationship connection between HCC and KCC? That would be great. We need each other so much, don't we? Mark's Gospel, one of the three synoptic Gospels, the others being Matthew and Luke. That means they're a summary of the life and death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. Uh, John's Gospel, completely different, written many years later, um, is a, a separate Gospel all about the actual person of the Lord Jesus. I'm delighted you've actually been going through Mark's Gospel, and if there's any overlap uh, of what I say today with what you've gone through, then uh, we're sorry about that, but maybe it'll come as a refresher to you. As I see it, the distinctives of Mark's Gospel are that we see Jesus as the suffering servant. In Mark, we see the whole of the authority of Jesus as the Son of God. The whole of Mark is almost a declaration of his complete work and also Mark's gospel which was written uh, uh, some years before Matthew and Luke Mark's gospel was almost certainly a source uh, for Matthew and Luke's gospel you will have learned I'm sure in your previous session that Mark is a fast-moving action-packed event-filled gospel uh, one of the common words you'll find uh, throughout as you read Mark is that word immediately and immediately Jesus, and immediately, immediately. It's a recurring theme throughout the whole uh, book. And uh, little wonder then, because it's so action-packed and, and, and event-filled, uh, little wonder that courses like the Alpha Course and Christianity Explored uh, use Mark's Gospel for their teaching. Mark contains several parables. What is a parable? Well, uh, the standard definition is that it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Why did Jesus speak so much in parables? A common answer uh, is so that people uh, could understand. However, that is completely wrong. Jesus spoke in parables, not so that people would understand, but rather so that they would not understand. You see, parables conceal and parables reveal. In fact, earlier in the chapter, uh, the Lord Jesus had told the parable of the sower, which I think you may have dealt with last week. The reaction of the disciples to the parable of the sower is fascinating. Please let me quote verses 10 to 12 of the chapter. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Indeed, in those words, Jesus is quoting directly from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9 and verse 6, and in fact, those words are a direct fulfillment of that particular prophecy. And on a number of occasions in the Gospels, the disciples, like the crowds, were baffled by his parables. And so when they were alone with him, they would seek an explanation from the Lord Jesus. Uh, we've had that at the end of our reading a few moments ago. 
also we can note, can't we, that uh, so often our Lord's parables had a real sting in the tail uh, for the Pharisees. Now from this, we can deduce that the gospel is esoteric. What does that mean? Well, it means that the gospel of the kingdom of God comes by revelation. It can only be understood and experienced by those who are initiated into it. So, at the very outset of our message today, we can say that if you love the Lord Jesus Christ as your very own Saviour and Lord, then you have received a divine revelation from God himself. God the Holy Spirit has revealed to you your own state of helplessness and hopelessness before him, and he has shown you the Lord Jesus as your only hope of salvation. Another question. Sorry for this uh, series of questions. Why has Almighty God chosen to reveal his Son to you and not to your next door neighbour? Or perhaps your parents? Or perhaps even your children who are also not yet believers? The only biblical answer is that this is all in the purpose and grace of God. God was not obliged to save you from your sins but he chose to do so. And we are so grateful and full of praise and worship to him because he did this for us. So with that background, we turn to the passage that we're looking at today in Mark chapter 4. And in verses 21 to 25, we have a number of short, pithy, punchy statements which certainly would have arrested Jesus' hearers. It seems that these verses really force home the parable of the sower. It must have come like a sort of a, a, a mental memory stick to them. Let me read a couple of verses from uh, uh, verse 22. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If, you wanna, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. We can learn, friends, from our Lord's words here, that not only should we receive the spiritual knowledge of the kingdom of God, but that we should also impart it to others. Hence Jesus's words, you don't hide the light of a candle under a bed, but rather you put it in a candle holder so it spreads the light. And the purpose of the lamp is to be put on a lampstand and not under a bowl or under a bed, as it says, so that so the present day, this present day seeming almost hiddenness of Jesus will not always be. God intends that one day Jesus will be manifested in all his glory when he appears. So verses 21 to 23 are about sharing the truth of the kingdom of God. It is not to be hidden. You must shed the light of the gospel in the most conspicuous places. You are not to hide the gospel. You are to share it. But then not only are we to share the gospel, 
but we are also to mark the gospel. We have that in verses uh, 24 and 25, which we just read. Light and truth are to be the character, the very nature and behaviour of the believer. Light and truth are to mark the witness of every believer. A point of application here, I think. God gives the light of the truth to believers for a specific purpose, that it might be shared in how we live and also in how we speak. Our Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. A couple more examples of that. Paul in Ephesians 5 verse 8. For you were sometimes darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. One more. Philippians 2 verse 15. The Apostle Paul again. He prays that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world so for us who are believers our lives are to be characterized by light and truth how are we doing at this if a person is filled with junk he or she is responsible for that junk if we are filled with the knowledge of the truth of god then we are responsible for that truth and what we do with it. Friends, we are accountable for what we fill our minds and our hearts with. So the lesson of verse 24 is take heed, keep guard, to keep watch, to make sure we hear the truth of God's word. That is why we come together for fellowship on the Lord's Day and midweek to, to, to submit ourselves to the authority of God's word. We want to be under his counsel, don't we? But then in our passage, the Lord Jesus, he changes track and he proceeds to tell two parables from verses 26 to 32. One about growing seed and the other about the mustard seed. And perhaps we can just briefly recap on the first parable, uh, verse 26. He said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Now generally, parables have one main meaning, though they can also have several aspects or strands to them and in typical style the Lord Jesus begins with the kingdom of God is like there's a close correlation between many of our Lord's parables and the kingdom of God and we're taught firstly here that as in the growth of corn so in the work of grace in a believer there must be a sower I understand you did that parable last time you see the earth you see, the earth will never grow wheat by itself. And in the same way, the heart of a human being will never by himself or herself, will never turn to God, will never repent, will never believe the good news of the gospel. The normal human being is entirely dead towards God and is utterly barren of grace. Normal human beings are, are caught up in a web of sin and unbelief. 
The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? People are dead in their trespasses and sins. So God, as it were, by his Holy Spirit, must break up the, the stony ground of the human heart and plant within it a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart of a heart of a new nature. And God's servant plants the seed of God's word across the world. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, it germinates. We were hearing a little bit about that earlier with the work that Wycliffe are doing with all these versions of the word of God across the world. This parable emphasises the, the, the mysterious power of the seed to produce a crop. All the farmer can do is plant the seed on suitable ground. He cannot make the seed grow, nor does he understand how it grows, but it does grow and it produces grain. And of course, there is a great mystery about this. The farmer doesn't understand it. He's just so grateful that as a result of doing the right methodology, he gains a harvest. Now, by word and spirit, the kingdom of God is growing. The gospel is, is the means by which almighty God is calling his chosen people to himself, the church. And in this same way, the hidden and, and, and somewhat almost ambiguous kingdom of God will continue to grow until one day it will burst out in its full glory when the last soul for whom our Lord Jesus died is ushered into the kingdom. And the harvest that's spoken of here is the day of final judgment. Listen to verse 29. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And you know, so much of our Lord's teaching does point to a final great harvest. Uh, and this would have been so easily understood, wouldn't it, in what was an agricultural society. But this spiritual harvest is when God gathers in all his people, his church from all generations to himself, all tribes, all nations. And this will herald what the Bible describes as the marriage supper of the Lamb. It will be the glorious culmination of God's plan of redemption coming to its full consummation in a new world order. And this is the glorious gospel which we preach. And this is the gospel on which this church is founded. What a glorious hope is ours! Isn't it true, and dear friends, even among our Christian brothers and sisters, so many want Jesus to fix their lives on earth now instead of preparing for eternity. We only have a few years left. Life goes by so quickly. We should perhaps remind ourselves of the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 3. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Friends, this is such a solemn verse of scripture. For those of us who are believers, can you imagine if the Lord had veiled the gospel from us? And Paul also says, tells the Corinthians that the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit, for they are spiritually discerned. 
William Pitt was Britain's youngest ever prime minister. Uh, he was prime minister at the age of 24 in 1783. He was considered a man of outstanding intellectual ability. He had a, a fellow MP who was a friend and who was a Christian. Uh, one day in London, uh, some famous evangelist was having uh, some conducting these evangelistic meetings in London. And the MP invited William Pitt to come to the meeting. Reluctantly, uh, William Pitt agreed to go, not because he wanted to, he didn't, but out of deference to his friend, he agreed to go along. On the way home after the meeting where the gospel had been passionately preached, the MP asked Pitt, what did he think of the message? William Pitt replied that he did not understand a word the preacher had said. Now, for someone with such an intellect as Pitt, this is remarkable, but demonstrates, doesn't it, how to understand the gospel, we need the Holy Spirit's enlightenment. Uh, dear friends, we cannot explain the workings of God's grace in the hearts and minds of individuals. It, it, is, it is mysterious and unsearchable. Perhaps I could speak personally for just one brief moment. I did not have anything like a Christian upbringing. I hated Christianity uh, and becoming a Christian would have been the last thing I ever wanted. And yet, and yet, in his kindness and his love and his mercy, the grace of God came to me and changed me and changed my life, which was altered forever. My hell was turned to heaven and praise God for saving grace in the Lord Jesus. This is how the gospel works. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Our Lord's words to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 10, are appropriate here. He said, doesn't he, the wind blows where it, uh, where you, the wind blows where it blows. You hear the sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And for any of us involved in Christian ministry, we should constantly remind ourselves that our principal work is to sow the seed the seed of God's word, and only God himself can make it germinate, grow, and bear fruit. We cannot do the work of the Holy Spirit for him. We have to leave that to him. Of course, as a church, we must be accessible, user-friendly, warm, and welcoming. That really goes without saying, doesn't it? But preach the word, Plant the seed, and the rest is his work. And, and we also can pick up from uh, this parable that as in the growth of corn, so it is in the work of grace. It is a gradual process. Now, it is not necessarily a good thing to go chasing numbers in church. We're not called to be successful. That's a worldly term. We're called to be faithful. And if the Lord in his mercy kindly gives us an increase, then all praise and thanks to him. Let's look again at verse 29. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Growth is sure, but it's gradual. That's how the church grows over the generation. 
And when we think about it, friends, the church, which began with 12 ignorant, illiterate fishermen and such like, would in no time at all have turned the world upside down. And today, the church of Jesus is a number that none of us can begin to number. And the Lord Jesus then continues into his second parable, the parable of the mustard seed. As it's very short, perhaps uh, we can remind ourselves again, and um, it's just verses 30 uh, to 32. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Once again, we learn that like the grain of mustard seed, the visible church was to be small and, and, and fragile and weak in its beginnings. Now, in those days in the ancient Near East, a grain of mustard seed was really a proverbial saying for something very small very insignificant. Uh, our Lord twice in the gospel used mustard seed as a figure of speech. Uh, when speaking of weak faith, for instance, in Matthew 7, 17 verse 20, he said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed. See, this is typical of the Lord Jesus in that he speaks using words and phrases that his common hearers would easily understand. So the mustard seed is an appropriate emblem to represent the church of the Lord Jesus in its early days. Now, when we think about it, how did the head of the church, how did the head of the church come into the world? Well, he came as a feeble baby, born in a manger in the lowest of circumstances. No power, no armies, no attendance. Let's think about the head of the church, how it all started. The Son of God had nowhere to be born. He had nowhere to live. He had no money to pay his taxes. He had no friends in his hour of need. He had no God with him at the time of his death. He even had nowhere to be buried. And, and who were the first members of this movement? They were poor, unlearned men fishermen, publicans and other low occupations. So on the surface appearance then, these hardly seemed an impressive bunch of soldiers, did they? And also we're thinking here about what is the smallest of the mustard seed. It's in a sense, it's a figure of the humbleness of the church in its beginning. Let's think about the last public act of ministry of the head of this church, the Lord Jesus. He was crucified as a common criminal between two thieves. He had been abandoned by most of his disciples. One of them had betrayed him, another one had denied him. This is hardly the stuff of great and mighty things, is it? Uh, moreover, let's think about the message and the teaching of this little movement this small bunch of believers following Jesus's resurrection and his ascension into heaven. It was a message which was to the Jews a great stumbling block. They couldn't get it. And to the Gentiles, it was utter foolishness. 
And the gospel message of this small band of believers was that the head of the church had been put to death on the cross, but now he was alive and that life, everlasting life, could be offered to all the world through what he had done. But alas to the world, this seemed weakness and feebleness. We can see why Jesus uses the symbol of a mustard seed, can't we? Back to the parable. In it, the mustard seed, as Jesus says, grows into the largest of all garden plants. It's said that in those days, a fully grown mustard seed plant became like a, 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 a tree, a tree-like bush in which a horse and rider could shelter under its shade. And so from the day of Pentecost, when God the Holy Spirit was poured out in remarkable power, the church began to grow rapidly, exponentially against all possible human predictions. And we know from uh, Acts chapter 2 that 3,000 people became believers as a result of the Apostle Peter's preaching that day. It was said of the Apostles that they turned the world upside down. But of course, this growth was all of God. And the apostles responded to the missionary commission, which our Lord gave to them at the uh, just before his ascension at the end of Matthew chapter 28. And as a result of the preaching of the gospel by the apostles in the power of the Holy Spirit, thousands upon thousands had their lives turned around. And as our Lord had told them, recorded in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So they're, they're the parables. We've seen the background. We've seen the parables. We can see some of the meanings. But let's see now. If we can draw some helpful lessons and some uh, some analogous conclusions from these parables that, that are going to be helpful to us in our own lives of faith. Uh, firstly, we can notice that Jesus uses vivid, thought-provoking imagery, doesn't he, to awaken spiritual truth in others. Uh, but of course, our Lord's description of the kingdom, it's not what the people were wanting or even expecting. They were militarily occupied by a pagan gentile army and in a sense we could say that the kingdom of god is here but it's not like what you thought it would be for those wanting or expecting the kingdom of god to sweep through the world and dominate structures and institutions well it isn't it just isn't like that there's a strand of uh, believers, many of them across the pond in the United States, who hold to what's known as a, a dominion theology, which honestly believes that the world can get better until the Lord Jesus returns. I don't see that as really the Bible's way. You see, as in the days of our Lord Jesus, so it is in our day and age. The kingdom is hidden, but it's not invisible. The kingdom of God is you and me quietly involved in the work of building the Lord Jesus's church. This is the great work we're involved in, friends. 
And for those of us who love the Lord Jesus, what a thrill to be involved in this great scheme, this scheme of God, to be working in the building of this glorious kingdom to which we've been called into. But this is not triumphalism now, that comes later. The kingdom of God is not a juggernaut that mows down everything in its path. In fact, dear friends, there is a, there's a humble ordinariness about the kingdom of God in this present age. You see, the reign of God rarely makes headlines. The church on many levels seems inconsequential, almost impotent, often considered an irrelevant minority. However, it is through the church, it is through this movement, through the church, that is you and me, that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the whole watching world. But you know, even us who are in the kingdom, we're not aware of all God's grand schemes for this period of time, or of how in providence he's working out his plans. We, we don't know. We're just stepping stones. We're signposts. Uh, pointing people to the one who answers life's deepest questions, the one who can give life and life eternal. And the mystery of just how God accomplishes his purposes in the world, often silently and mysteriously, this applies to our own personal lives. You see, we're not on the world's agenda, are we? No, we're seeking to be on God's agenda. We are journeying through the wilderness of this world unto our own promised land, heaven itself. This is not our home. We're temporary sojourners. We're journeying through a wilderness. And in one sense, we're still in the bondage of Egypt under the, the structures of this fallen, sinful world, whom God has called us to be lights and ambassadors. But we're passing through, and our true destination is, is Canaan itself. It's the promised land. It's heaven itself. What a glorious hope we have. Friends, we need to be heavenly minded. This life is, well, this life is the only life we've got. It's the only life we know. And it's really, really important. But it's not as important as eternity. 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 Divide, divide three score years and ten. Your allotted years of life on this earth. You may get more days of grace. Divide that into eternity. Lord, make us heavenly minded. Help us to see eternity before us. Friends, these parables should instill confidence in us that can help us to overcome despair, especially at a, a season of life that we're all living through at the moment. The seed is growing. It is germinating, and by God's grace, we're all in this. And you know, God does not need us. He is building and will build his church regardless of you and I. But that said, in his love and in his grace, the Lord uses the likes of you and even me in this wonderful process 
of building the kingdom of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 9, we are labourers together with God. So, dear friends, as we draw to a conclusion, let's take heart. Let's be strengthened. Let's be encouraged by this passage. Parables do not promise instant growth. This is the long game that we're involved in. But praise God, we know we are working to a specified end. And we know how this story ends, don't we? And it's glorious. The glorification of the church. The day is coming when we, all the members of this unshakable, unstoppable kingdom of God, will be displayed to the whole world. We, the church, will be openly acquitted before the whole of humanity. And we will take our place in the new heaven and on the new earth, which will be recreated for those of the kingdom. But sadly, and we have to say this, for those who have failed to repent and to believe the good news of the gospel, there will be an eternal separation, a banishment from the love and blessing of God. The words of an old gospel hymn came to my mind when penning these words. I want to be there when they crown him, King of Kings. I don't want to be part of the unbelieving world destined for eternal punishment. Praise God, dear friends, the door of heaven is still open. The gospel invitation still stands. Please let us all make sure that we will saved by the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're adopted into his family and we're heirs of this eternal kingdom. Well, may this be the lot of each one of us today. Amen. Can I say a prayer for each of us? And thank you for listening, dear friends. Loving, loving Heavenly Father, uh, how we praise you uh, for him who loved us and gave himself for us, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he has purchased for every believer everlasting life. Gracious Holy Spirit, help us to live in the light of this. Oh, come and reign in each of our minds and hearts and lives, oh Lord. I thank you for your dear people of KCC that have gathered here today, Lord. Go with us into the new week. We give you ourselves afresh again in your wonderful name. Amen.